Okay, so we're uh, we're right on the 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 brink of uh, of really one of the, the the greatest one of the greatest days, um, Yom Kippur. The Gemara, uh, shockingly, perhaps, calls it one of the happiest days of the entire year. And it's a very small field; it's just two days that they that they single out for that. Tubav and Yom Kippur. So, so the classic perception of of Yom Kippur is that it's 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 actually a, a an incredibly happy time. Like it's officially happy. So, if, if that's the case, um, why why is it so emotionally complicated? Why why do we have uh, negative associations with it? And um, and there are all sorts of reasons. A lot of it, first and foremost, is just I, probably simple, just lack of understanding what the holiday is all about. So I think that let's just try to get uh, an overview um, um, about exactly what's going on. And I think that will help us. And, you know, uh, I, I once was having a conversation with someone, and, and we sort of like, sort of like summed it up this way that here, here was the kind of the quote depth is the consolation for the unhappy <laughs> you know like a lot of people like they they console themselves and, and sort of like you know reinforce and justify their own negative outlooks and cynicism um, as, as a product of their own great sophistication and the, the truth is is that to be happy and to be optimistic actually requires a, a greater degree of sophistication, uh, not a lesser amount of sophistication. And and sometimes we we sort of like associate, um, you know, happiness with a with a very simplistic uh, slash simple-mindedness. Uh, and I think that that is just it's it's erroneous. It's just it's just completely off. And um, so so there's a kind of like a, a repercussion to that when we approach things like. Um, you know, spirituality and, and understanding God and these holidays and things like that. And sometimes we, um, we, 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 we know too much, and I put too much in, in big quotation marks. We know too much, meaning to say we know lots of details, but we don't know what the simple overview and the simple truth is. And that the, um, the knowledge that we have sort of like reinforces the perception that we actually understand something, whereas when we're missing, whereas we're missing the entire point. So, la- Amount of information is not a is there's no direct correlation between knowledgeableness and understanding. Um, that 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 might not be intuitive, but it's that that's true. And and I'll give you uh, I'll give you an example. My grandfather, Shalom, used to say, um, "Smart, smart, stupid." And what 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 that meant was that there were. You could make say do something very smart, and then from there you do something even smarter than that, and then that leads you to a completely wrong conclusion. And so there's certain very highly intelligent things. That, um, high, th- let me rephrase that. There's certain mistakes that only highly intelligible, pe- intelligent people are eligible to make. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because you would not have gotten to those rarefied realms of error unless you were able to climb the scales of knowledge in order to reach them. So, so these are very advanced wrong conclusions. So, so what I'm saying is, is that we, we are guilty of this when we have a lot of information, but we don't know the simple truth. 
right? And and so the so and then and then again we think we know because we have so much information, but we're completely lacking what the bottom line is. So again, simplicity. Simplicity is you know to quote Steve Jobs, he he, he said very brilliantly and succinctly, simple is hard. It really is. And I'm, I'm telling you, as a storyteller, you know, professionally speaking, to get it so that it's just sort of like, oh yeah, there's like an, an inevitability to the character's journey. Like, of course they just, no, you don't know. That's really hard to do. Or it just sort of like, it just flows and it makes total sense, the entire process. You have to, not, you have to, ha, you have to not go down so many detours and side paths in order for that to be totally smooth, okay? So anyway, with this in mind, let's let's get back to Yom Kippur. So first and foremost, Yom Kippur is happy. Why is it happy? For the simple reason that we're being forgiven. Like if, if you went, if you found out, Rip Shomer used to give this example. If of all of a sudden the bank called you up and said, you know the you know the three hundred thousand dollars you owe, you don't owe it anymore. How would you feel? <laughs> You'd be like, ah! <laughs> Right? Like you wouldn't stop jumping up and down. You couldn't believe it. Like you'd be so happy. So what do you think is happening on Yom Kippur? It's happening, that's happening in an even deeper way. You know, because this, the, 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 a person uh, on a spiritual level accrues debts, so to speak. And to have them wiped clean? This is amazing. This is amazing. Okay. So now... We have a classic Torah, super classic Torah, cash Torah for sure, from the Pshiska Rebbe. Remember the Pshiska Rebbe was the, the Rebbe of the Kutzka Rebbe, right? So he said, how is it possible? You know, like, especially at the Happy Minion, and I hope you can all make it to the Happy Minion, and, and if you can't make it um, for the whole thing, please come for Ni'ila, you know, unless you have a spot that you love. Um, or even Kol Nidre is, is very strong. It's, the whole day is very strong. Um, and we go all day, God willing. Um, and, uh, and so, let's say you're in shul. You're, you're in shul all day. You're, and, and then there's the Maruf, right? Because, you know, it's, it always is like amazing, right? Like you're in shul all day. And then someone slaps their hand, claps on, on the shtender and says, Maruv, you know, and you're like, well, there's more, you know. And then there's, and then during Maruv, you have this amazing prayer, which is Slach which is, God, please forgive us. And, you know, it's traditional to sort of like, to clap yourself on the, on the chest as you say it. And so, what could we be, what did we do? We literally haven't left the room. <laughs> You know, so, so the Pshiska says that, you know what you're atoning for? For the fact that God forgave you and you didn't believe him. So this is a Torah that, that everyone has to wrestle with and struggle with before Yom Kippur. Meaning to say, as I head into Yom Kippur, do I actually buy into the premise of Yom Kippur? Because a person, a person, a person has to believe that they're about to be forgiven. 
So that is a giant, that's like all of a sudden you just opened up the floodgates to all sorts of uh, issues, you know? Because why is it that it's so hard to believe that we're going to be forgiven? Why is that so hard? And I think that there are a bunch of answers to it, but I think that maybe we can start with the idea that most of us don't forgive ourselves. And because we don't forgive ourselves, we don't, we're not really acquainted with the notion of what forgiveness is. So it's sort of like we, we live with this daily um, reality of the impossibility of forgiveness. So when someone, when someone, when Hashem, when Hashem is handing out forgiveness on the grandest, most exalted level, we don't even recognize it to take it because we've so, we've so shut ourselves off emotionally from what it is. And on another side, a lot of us are great at forgiving ourselves and really bad about forgiving other people. We allow ourselves every bit of slack, you know, and the Rambam talks about this. this is, he, he describes this as self-love. You know, self-love is different from self-esteem. Self-esteem we all need. That's essential to living. But self-love is this notion that, you know what, I can do no wrong. But this guy, oh my goodness, he, he can't do anything right. And we become tight-fisted and stingy, really stingy with forgiveness. Stingy with ourselves, stingy with other people, begrudging with ourselves, begrudging with other people. We have a bad eye for ourselves. We have a bad eye for other people. And all these things block the heavenly forgiveness from really being received. By the way, it, it happens anyway. Whether you believe it or not, it happens anyway. So that's reassuring. But wouldn't it be nice to actually experience this feeling of a clean slate? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be wonderful? And we can do that. But we have to, we have to sort of like re-educate ourselves um, as to what forgiveness is all about. Now you see, it gets, it gets more, more, more detailed, more complicated. R- Rabbi Soloveitchik says that um, there's two things, and now we're getting more into the mechanics of this, emotionally speaking as well. We've got the idea of forgiving someone. Right? Let's say someone like really messed us up or hurt our feelings. Okay? So let's say we say, you know what? I'm genuinely going to forgive you. But now listen to what Rabbi Soloveitchik adds, something very essential. He says, there's a part two. What's the part two? The restoration of the relationship. See, how many people have you actually forgiven and really forgiven, but the relationship doesn't go back to the way it was? Do you hear that? That's a, that's a, very, that's a very, very significant point. Because what we want is, we want the full restoration of our relationship with Hashem. We don't, want just, we don't want just simple forgiveness. We want the fullness of the relationship restored. That's a whole nother level. That's a whole nother level. So, so you see... You see, with this in mind, you really have to understand, like, um, you have to understand the process, how it rolls out. 
And like when I was growing up, it's like, and really until I would say very, very recently, within the last couple of years, and I'm still very much working on this uh, on myself, just really understanding the process of what, these, what this holiday period is. That Rosh Hashanah is Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is not Yom Kippur. Rosh Hashanah is not Sukkot. Rosh Hashanah is not Hoshana Rabbah. Rosh Hashanah is Rosh Hashanah. Then you've got the Aseris Yumei Tshuva, the days in between. That's its own thing. Then you've got Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is not Hoshana Rabbah, and it's not Sukkot. Then you've got Sukkot. And you've got the days in between. All these things are separate ideas. And all these things are an unfolding of this process between us and God. And you really have to understand what each one of these milestones is. Okay? Because what it's leading to, after Yom Kippur, what it's leading to is sitting in the sukkah. Now, the, I, I, when I heard this, I heard this, I thought this was absolutely like a Reb Shlomo 1960s era Torah, that when you're sitting in a sukkah, that it's like God is hugging you. That that's like a divine hug. Then I heard it in the name of the Ari. All right? And really, even the Vilna Gon is talking about this. Okay? And we'll, hopefully we'll get to the details. But the idea is that this is, you see, when you're already hugging someone, this is like the restoration of a relationship. Right? Like you can say, you know what? I forgive you. Okay. I forgive you. You forgive me. I forgive you. But you're not hugging. <laughs> if you say, I forgive you. You forgive me. I forgive And then you're hugging. Then something is happening. Something is being transacted. Okay? So what's happening after Yom Kippur is, and you have to wait for it because there's a process, then comes sitting in the sukkah, which is Hashem is hugging you. Right? And you are allowing yourself to be hugged. Because have you ever been hugged and you don't want to be hugged? That's a bummer, right? It's sort of like, eh, eh, are you done yet? Eh, okay, okay, so, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, you've got the hugger and the huggy. <laughs> and they both have to kind of be on the same page, you know. But if they are, then that's a beautiful thing. That's the restoration of relationship, right? And so the idea, to bring it now back to the, the Vilna Gon, see, because we have a, we have a, a famous question uh, that the tour brings, um, which is, why don't we have Sukkot after Pesach? Like, we should have it in the Pesach Shavuos time. Because what, what is Sukkot all about? Sukkot is all about the 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 um, the Ananiya covered the clouds of glory, which protected us and surrounded us as we marched through the desert. So that was like a big ongoing divine hug, right? And it says like these these clouds were really miraculous. They were like bulletproof essentially. Like arrows would bounce off of them, and like they you know like they cleaned your clothes and. You know, there were all sorts of like amazing, miraculous properties about these clouds. But it was really this, this ongoing divine hug. When we worship the golden calf, they went away. Okay? So, so after Yom Kippur, when we get the second luchos, and we'll talk about more, more about that, God willing, in a moment. When we get the second luchos, remember, Moshe smashes the tablets. So just before we get 
too advanced. Let's make sure that we heard the question a moment ago. Since the since when we left Egypt, that's when we got the clouds of glory. And since Sukkot is about the clouds of glory, because that's what the Sukkah represents, then why not have Sukkot right after Pesach? That would be the logical time for it to come in the calendar, right? So the answer is because right before we even left Mount Sinai, right, we, we worshiped the golden calf and the clouds went away. Right? Because that because we had messed up the relationship. Right? So after what happens on Yom Kippur is the 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 tablets that were smashed at the time of the clouds going away, which was the worshipping of the golden calf, all of a sudden we get the second tablets. Like in other words, that gets fixed up, that gets brought back down to us. And the relationship is restored. And so that's why, once the relationship is restored, Sukkot happens after Yom Kippur, because the clouds and the hug returns. Because it's not till everything is fixed up in terms of our relationship with God that the hug is restored, that the relationship is restored. So that's why Sukkot is coming after Yom Kippur instead of after Pesach. Okay? Because it's the restoration of the relationship that took place on Yom Kippur. Now I think something that um, that just just to maybe just finish the idea about the the unfolding the unfolding nature of the holidays is that there's there's a there's a timeline, but emotionally speaking we also have a timeline. I know when I first got married, um, one of the things that uh, I I had to kind of like arrive at this kind of um, understanding in terms of uh, marriage and relationships was that, okay, let's say say I upset my wife and then we talk and I apologize and I have insight, let's say, into what I did wrong and I say I'm sorry and then I go, okay, so now let's go to the movies, let's go out for dinner, whatever it is, and she doesn't want to. And it's like, that was very frustrating to me, because it's sort of like, I apologized, I understand what I did wrong, I'm going to try my best not to do it, what's the issue? Let's get back to normal life. Well, people are not machines. You can forgive someone, but you can still need some time to recover. And you have to allow the other person some time and some space to be able to recover. And and then hopefully that happens in a, in a reasonable time, right? By the way, just as a, a side point, I'm just putting it out there because just it's always relevant to say this and just, just in case I don't hear this point made enough. Um, so Anyone who engages in giving people, especially their partner or children or whatever, the silent treatment, mm. that's, it's disgusting. It's, it's a disgusting, disgusting behavior, and don't do it. Don't do it. You can say, I'm hurt, I need some more time, please just give me a little more space, I forgive you. You have to reassure the other person, because they don't get it that they're forgiven. Because if you are being emotionally distanced and you don't want to do the normal activities, 
you have to reassure the person that they are forgiven, but you just need a little bit more time. But the idea of the silent treatment is mamish aser. It's, it's forbidden. Okay? Okay. So, so, so again, you see that, that idea. Now, I don't want to impart, um, don't, mis- don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't want to impart um, these, uh, these, these human processes to God, Kaviyoko, but I think that there is an interesting teaching that the clouds return, you know, a, 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 a four days after Yom Kippur. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's sort of like, there is this sort of like, there is this sort of like period. Now, granted, I, I don't want to overly darshan it, you know? God is absolutely forgiving us. But nonetheless, there's, there's a lesson that we can learn as human beings in that, that there's an unfolding process of forgiveness. And, and it's, this is important, too, for ourselves, because let's say someone asks us for forgiveness, and we say, you know what? And you're thinking in your head, okay, they're asking for forgiveness, I'll forgive them. But, uh, you know, it's never going to be the same. Okay, you know what? You may feel that in your heart at that moment, but give yourself some time. Give yourself some time. Right? And, 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 and the more... The rabbis make this point, and it's a very crucial point, and it's a very, very deep point. So listen carefully. Um, the Ramak makes this in, 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 in Tamar Devar. Okay? We'll get to it in a moment. Here's the bottom line. The more you forgive other people, the more God forgives you. Okay? The more you forgive other people, the more God forgives you. Okay. Now, how does that work in terms of the divine mechanics? So the Ramak says, and I heard Rabbi Kersner, Allah Shalom, give this um, sort of uh, this visual to it. Imagine there's someone um, in a control booth, right? Like, and... You know, he's got all these levers in front of him. And as he pulls down this lever, this, this, I don't remember the exact details, but this comes out. And he pulls out down this lever, and this comes out, right? So, so that's sort of, so to speak, us and God. If we, if we withhold anger, right, what we've done is we've pulled a lever stopping divine anger happening into the world. If we are very, um, if we are, if we give tzedakah, say, or we do chesed, charity or kindness, we're pulling a lever and divine kindness, divine charity is coming into the world. Do you see? So we actually operate the controls. We're sort of like a miniature of the universe. And when we exercise our mitos, our character traits in the proper way, what we're doing is we're making, we're making um, conduits for divine energy to either come into the world or not come into the world. You see, because ultimately, let's just explain this from a different angle. If someone just starts yelling at you, right? On some level, that's God yelling at you. Okay, now, again, that person might have a reason for yelling at you and you... You have to address the simple truth of the matter. Like, can you imagine someone's yelling at you, right? And you run to shul, and you start, like, doing tshuva, and you never apologize to the person? Like, that's called being overly spiritual (laughs) and being a little bit of a dunce, right? Because you have to 
you have to address the here and now of the reality of your situation. If someone is yelling at you or is mad at you, you have to understand that interpersonal relationship. However, on a grander, more macrocosmic level, you have to understand that somehow that energy is coming from above. Okay? So, so you, have to address, you have to address both aspects of those things. You have to address both aspects of those things. Okay? First in the here and now. Remember, what very important teaching, getting back to the simplicity of the total overview of the subject. God gives you forgiveness on Yom Kippur. Interpersonally, if you've, if you've angered another person or done something bad to another person, Yom Kippur does not address that. Yom Kippur only addresses the, the, the person-to-God stuff, not the, not the person-to-person stuff. Okay, that's very, very crucial. You know, so, um, because I can't, you know, and this is, this is where religion gets a bad name. This is missing that point, which is a very fundamental point. This is where religion gets a bad name, where people say, oh, that guy's so religious, but he, you know, he cheats at business, or he does this, that, and the other thing, Right? Because people perceive that somehow you think because you've made it, you've got a close relationship with God, which the person might genuinely have, or is very careful about those type of um, obligations, that that gives them license to sort of disrespect other people. It's 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 that's just foolishness. That's not Torah. That's not Judaism at all. You know, there's a prayer that they say is, I've heard it said that it's even more important than Kol Nidre. And it's, 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 it's said before Kol Nidre, but you have to be super organized to be able to say it. Because, you know, Erev Yom Kippur, there's so much to do. There's a million things to do, and it's a long prayer. Right? But it's in the Machser. And it, it goes through, like, all the different parts of the body that may have been messed up over the course of the year. And it, 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 it also talks about getting forgiveness from other people who you don't now at this point have time to ask forgiveness for? You know, it's really, it's like a very crucial prayer, but it's long. You have to like, really, if you want to say it, you have to really set your mind to planning out your Erev Yom Kippur very carefully because you have to get to show like a half an hour earlier in order to be able to say that, okay? It's in the beginning of the Machser, um, the Yom Kippur prayer book. Okay, so I want to, I want to, Switch subjects slightly, but only slightly. We're still talking about Yom Kippur. We we just read Parshas Vayelech, and um, there was something that I saw there that that was like very upsetting, really, you know. And um, and uh, and and just to kind of set the scene, um, Moshe is about to leave this world, and Hashem tells him, He says, "Listen, here's what's going to happen." The, you know, the Jewish people are going to go into the land of Israel and they're going to start worshipping other gods and it's going to be a bad scene and I'm going to annul my covenant with them. Right? I'll, I'll read you where it says it. It's on page, um, well, it's Parshas uh, Vayelech, uh, chapter 31 in Devaru, uh, verse 20, Okay. For I, I shall bring them into the land that I swore to their forefathers, which flows with milk and honey. 
but uh, it, meaning us, will eat, be sated, satisfied, and grow fat, and turn to gods of others and serve them. It will provoke me and annul my covenant. It says it, and then it says in another place, annul my covenant, right? So we, we have one of the absolute premises of Judaism is that the covenant is never annulled. It's never, it's eternal, it's forever. So why is it saying it here? And it says it one place else in the Parsha, the annulling of the covenant. This is like very, you know, very distressing stuff. So I thought, you know, what am I doing reading the English? Let me check the Hebrew, because obviously it's a bad translation. Mm-hmm. So the word is vehefer. So, you know, I call over Yehuda Solomon. I say, Yehuda, what's, what does this word mean, vehefer? He goes, ah, it means to, it means to wipe out, to, uh, to annul. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, the problem is not with the translation, then, you know? So, so, but it's still, it can't be the case. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why it can't be the case, if you, if, you, if you want to see it someplace else. One of the, I think, absolute foundational moments in the whole Torah is, it's in uh, Devarim, in Deut- Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is um, this is rarely quoted by those uh, by other religions when they're talking about us. It will be that when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse that I have presented before you, then you will take it to your heart among. Then you will take it. It's it's God is prophesying that that we are going to do tshuva. Then you will take it to your heart among all the nations where Hashem your God has dispersed you, and you will return unto Hashem your God. Tshuva, mass tshuva is going to happen. And listen to his voice according to everything that I commanded you today, you and your children, with all of your heart and all your soul. Here's the crucial line. Then Hashem your God will bring back your captivity and have mercy upon you. And he will return and gather you in from all the peoples to which Hashem your God has scattered you. If you're dispersed, will be at the ends of the heaven. From there, Hashem your God will gather you in and from there he will take you. Hashem your God will bring you to the land that your forefathers possessed and you shall possess it. He will do good to you and make you more numerous than your fathers. Hashem your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offsprings to love Hashem your God with all of your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So that is the official happy ending. You know, to, to Judaism, to, the, to, the, to, the, to world history, there it is, right there. God spells it out completely. We are going to come back as a people, and God is going to completely like forgive and embrace and, and deepen our relationship and bring Mashiach. It's all right there. Period. End. So anyone who says that, oh no, the Jews messed up too much, and then God's forsaken them, chas v'shalom. They're, they're, it's, 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 not only is it, is it wrong, but it's actually intellectually dishonest. Because it's a complete misrepresentation of what the, 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 the Torah says. Complete misrepresentation. So if, that, if that's the case, then how do you understand a word like annul? Okay, so now we're back to our annul question. So the word is vehefer. Okay, so I want to give you an analysis. I looked into the word because I was like, okay, so this word obviously isn't being understood properly. I understand that that on, on some level it means annul, but it, it, it doesn't mean annul in the sense that we understand it, like the, the, the covenant is canceled. It doesn't mean that. So then what does it mean? Okay? 
So, so, so I'm going to break down the word, and um, it's four letters: vav, hey, fe, resh. Okay, I'm going to break down the word, but I want to just tell you just a, again a, a foundational thought that I heard from Rabbi Bergman, which I thought was just so, just spot on and just nice and concise, which is that the, the most elemental unit of meaning in Torah is the letter. It's not the word. It's not the word. It's not the most elemental level of meaning. It's not the root of the word. It's actually just the letter. Okay? So that's, that's important because if you look into the methodology of Torah analysis, um, especially as you get into the, the depths of it, a lot of times they're going to be breaking down words into letters and explaining what each letter means and things like that. So you have to understand that there's real integrity to that approach because the elemental, the DNA of meaning exists within the letters themselves. Okay? So with that is an introduction. So let's start with the last two letters of the, of the word. The hefer. The hefer is fe or pe, I'll say pe, is pe resh. Okay? Fe and pe are the same letter. So um, that spells par. Now, in par is actually a very important bit of Torah shorthand that you should know. Par is, I, I've seen in, 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 in the Sifrei Kadosh, in the holy books, um, I, I, I saw it in the Noam Elim, in, in, the, uh, in the Imre Noam, in the, the Jikover Rebbe. I saw it in Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver. I saw it in the Meor Vashemesh. So this is like this is like pretty much across the board Torah shorthand, okay? That people should know is 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 this word par? It's used as like an abbreviation. Okay, so what is what is par mean? So par means din. It means judgment. Okay, but why? Why does par mean? Why is that code? Because it is code. Why is it code for din for like strict justice? Why? Because par is the gematria 280. Now, that's an important number, and I'll tell you why. Because we have one of the most, for me, fantastical, like, super cool aspects of Torah are the final letters of the olive base. The final letters are a whole field of study in and of themselves, okay? Now, the final letters, um, if you take all of the final letters and you add up the gematria of all the final letters, it adds up to 280, which is par. Okay? Now, why is that significant? Why is the final letter significant? Because the final letters stand for din, or justice. Okay? And if you think about it just on a conceptual level, it makes sense. Because the final letter ends something. That's the end. Right? So that's, that's the concept of justice. It din, end. Okay? So now, imagine if you take all of the final letters and gather them all together into one ball, that's one heaping bit of din, right? That's like, that's like the culmination of din right there. So that's 280, and that's par. Par is shorthand for that whole concept that we just discussed, okay? Now, by the way, the Imre Noam says shofar, because shofar, the last two letters of shofar are par, right? Shofar means to sweeten the din. Okay, so that's when we're blowing the shofar, we're... we're we're breathing like, like chesed and light and, and, and forgiveness into this concept of justice, right? Shofar. And, and he derives how shofar means to sweeten. Okay. 
the first two letters. Okay. Now let's get back to us here now. So now we see, so for hefer, so if that means to annul, well, it makes perfect sense now that the last two letters are par, right? Okay, we get that. Now what about the first two letters? Amazing. Vav hey. Vav hey, for goodness sakes. Doesn't that paint a picture immediately? So we know it's returned to our classic cosmic map, or at least one paradigm of the cosmic map, where we've got the name of Hashem. We've got Yud on top, like a ladder, right? Yud, and underneath the Yud, we have He, and underneath that, we have Vav, and underneath that, we have He. So everybody knows that this, this signals, like basically, like basically all the worlds, right? All the spiritual realms and everything like that. The, the, the upper Yud He means the upper worlds, and the Vav He on the bottom sim- symbolizes this realm, this dimension that we live in now. Okay? So now, let's revisit this word. The Hefer, which we're translating as a null, is Vav He, meaning to say, our dimension where we exist, par, there will be very, very strict justice in this dimension that we live in. Do you hear? Okay. But that's not an omen. That's not an omen. That's not an omen. In other words, it is the perception of an omen. And I can't give a better example, unfortunately, than the Holocaust. The Holocaust seemed to be God abandoning us completely. But we see decades afterwards that God is very, 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 very much still with us. Very, 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 very much still with us. So, so the relationship, God forbid, a zillion times, even during the Holocaust, was not annulled. It was not annulled, clearly, obviously. Looking back on even the short span of history that we have right now, we see that it was not annulled. But what was experienced was vav he par. What was experienced was the perception of massive din. Massive, massive, unimaginable din. But not an omen. Not an omen. Not an omen. Why? Because Hashem, because we're His people. That's forever. It never changes. It never changes on a national level. And it never changes in terms of our, each of our individual relationships with him. You know, there's a long story, and uh, it's, oh my goodness, I can't tell it, but, 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 it's, but I want to just cut to the end of it, okay? So Reb Shlomo was in, in, in Lakewood, and um, the chief rabbi of, I think it was Tehran, was visiting, and he was a Belzer Hasid. I don't know how that happened exactly, but there you go. And he walked with him and he told him this story. And he told him, he said, whenever you tell this story, you have to hold the person's hand who you're telling it to. Okay? So you can hold your own hand. <laughs> but it's a, it's a long story, but I'm just going to cut to the end of it. Okay? So there was a a yid who was in a lot of trouble, and basically his his life was at, at, at stake, really. He was going to be killed by the landowner for 
um, lack of payment for a debt, and he actually ends up getting beaten within an inch of his life. And he goes to see um, Rebbe Limelech of Lezhensk, the Nome Limelech, who says to him, when he comes to collect the final time, which was basically when this person was going to be killed because he didn't have the money, instead of you giving him the 10,000 rubles that you owe him, you ask him for 10,000 rubles. Right? So, anyway, he runs away from Rebbe Limelech and he says, you know, he's lost his mind. He, maybe he was holy once, but, you know, it's not happening anymore. Anyway, the person comes to, to collect the money. And through a twist and turn, all of a sudden the landowner now actually needed to make up with him. Because basically his wife was going to leave him unless he made up with him. Because he was very helpful to his wife in terms of like negotiating with various you know, people at the, the, the equivalent of the shuk there in, in uh, Poland, I guess, or Russia, wherever it was. So he says, come out, come out. He says, I, I, I want to be friends with you. And he's like, <laughs> you know, the guy knows he's going to kill him. Or he thinks he's going to kill him. He goes, no. He says, what will it take for you to come out and for us to be friends again? And all of a sudden he remembers the words of Rabbi Elimelech and he says, you give me 10,000 rubles. <laughs> and he says, okay. And his life is saved. And he, he ends up starting a business with his wife and they end up prospering and they become rich. And there comes a point where he says, you know something, we, we, we've, we, we, we're, we're, we're guilty. We, we, did, we did wrong. Rebbe Melech, this is all because of Rebbe Melech, and we never thanked him. So he goes to see Rebbe Melech. And here's, here's the point of the story. So, Rebbe Melech turns to the Chos of Lublin. Remember the Chos of Lublin. If you want to know the greatness of Rebbe Elimelech of Lezhensk, the Chos of Lublin was his Talmud, was his student. Okay, The Ruminover was his Talmud. right? These, the the Kozhnitzer was his Talmud. These are the greatest people. They, they were Talmidim of Rebbe Elimelech of Lezhensk. And by the way, if you want to go, the 21st of Adar is his Yurtzeit. And a lot of people go to, to this day, to his kever, to his gravesite. Um, so he turns to the Chose of Lublin, who had looked at his kvittel, right? The, the, the thing that you, the note that you write out, which has your request for the Rebbe, and has your name on it, and your mother's name, and Rebbe's are able to look into a kvittel and to kind of get to the roots of your soul and to figure out what your tikkun is and all sorts of things like this. And the Chos of Lublin had, had looked into his kvittel, this person's kvittel, and told him that basically that he was going to die, more or less. Which turned out to be correct because he was beaten within an inch of his life. 
But Reb Eliam Melech of Lezhensk, when, when, when the story was finally complete and they're coming to him and they're thanking him and they're telling him how it all worked out and they took his advice. So here's the point. Reb Eliam Melech turned to the Chos of Lublin and he said, You saw far, but I saw further. You saw the bad times that were going to happen, but I saw the good times after the bad times. So you can hold on to this story the rest of your life. You can hold on to that story the rest of your life. You saw far, but I saw farther. You saw the bad time that was coming, but I saw the good time after the bad time. You see, the Holocaust, we've never had it worse. We've never had it worse. But a few years later, we all of a sudden, like, the Jews from all around the world are returning, and they're building Israel. It's, it's impossible. It's impossible that Israel, as, as a nation, as it stands right now, exists. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. Do, do, do you know that at the time of Shlomo Melech, you know, if you, classically speaking, if you say, when was the best time in all of Jewish history? Right? Like, the authorities will tell you pretty definitively. It was during the first base of Mikdash, during the reign of Shlomo Melech. It's not like a brain teaser. It's not like, if you could have a dinner with anyone, who would you have dinner with? Who would you like? Who would you invite to your Shabbos table? David Amelov, you know, like, like it's not, it's not, it's not a riddle. There's an answer to this question. It was during the times of Shlomo Melech. And during the times of Shlomo Melech, during the first base at Migdash, all of the kings came to Israel. They all came to Israel to get wisdom, right? In fact, a lot of sources say that a lot of the Greek wisdom culminating in like Aristotle and things like that was being taught by Shlomo Melech to like the nations of the world then. Like all sorts of things were coming down, right? Two weeks ago, I think it was. You know, when we talk in terms of like, you know, there's some sort of like biblical numbers, right? Like 400 is a real biblical number. 70 is a real biblical number, like we talk about this 70 nations. Now, I, I haven't fact-checked this, but I saw it from a couple of places, so let's, let's just go with it and say it's true. Okay. We talk about the 70 nations. You know that 70 heads of state came to Shimon Peres? Peres? No. no? Is that not? I'm asking. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's what I heard. That's, that's what wild. I heard. They said that that's, they knew yeah, 70. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I heard. And these were the this was Obama? Yes. These were the kings of the world coming to Jerusalem. This is two weeks ago. Do you know that Israel is a speck on the map? Do you understand that? I mean, the without getting into the whole Arab Israeli conflict, one of the most heartbreaking aspects of it is just open a map for goodness sakes and look at how large the Arab nations surrounding Israel are. I'm, I'm only, I'm not talking about anything, I'm not getting into any of the issues. 
I'm just talking about a simple map right now. Look at how large they are. Look at how large Iraq is. Look at how, I'm just talking about landmass right now. Saudi Arabia, Iran, Jordan, Egypt, Lebanon. Just look at just how, just, I'm just talking about a simple spatial visual. And look at this tiny speck that's Israel. There's not enough land to go around? You need that too? I understand there are other issues. I, I get it. I'm not blind to the fact that it's complicated. But if you approach it on that level, I mean, please. And that tiny speck, the 70 leaders of the world are coming to, and all you have to do is like just follow like the internet a little bit, the news. You'll see all of the top technological companies of the world, Apple, Microsoft, all of them, all have headquarters in Israel. All come to Israel for technology and wisdom. All of the, all of the great industries of the world for technological advancement come to Israel. How is that, how is that possible? How is that possible? You have to understand something. Rabbi Yitzhak Isaacover brings this out. Who was the first born Jew? Who was the first born Jew? Yitzchak, right. It says that Sarah, it's not that Sarah was infertile. She didn't have a womb. I mean, that's like you know, 50 steps beyond infertile. <laughs> Abraham had issues. And a baby is born? In other words, Yitzchak, and, and when is it born? As though that's not enough. Like, to like, okay, God says, okay, just stay with me. And she's 90. <laughs> and he's 100. Right? As though it had to be even more miraculous. Right? But we came from somewhere. Here we are, right? So, what's the point? The point is, is that the entire existence of the nation of Israel, of the people Israel, is all completely based on a miracle. It's all a miracle. Our whole, like, can you imagine, like, our, like you've got like an upside-down pyramid. It's all balanced on a miracle, and the tip of the miracle is floating above the ground. <laughs> It's not even like, oh, you were able to exactly position it and you got the belt. No, it's floating on the ground. You have, I mean, my, my brother-in-law was telling me his, his father was in, in, in Europe during World War II. Do you understand what the status of Jewish people are? They were considered like cockroaches. Like there's a Jew, like just step on, step on. That three years after the end of World War II, there's a, 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 a nation of Israel that the entire world is coming to to say, show us how to do things. So it's happening, it's happening in front of our eyes. It's happening in front of our eyes. It's a process. It's a process, though, at the same time. Right? 
So that God who is unfolding this miraculousness in front of our God, in front of our eyes is also part of that process is he wants to be in this relationship with us. You know, at a certain point, at a certain point, do you do you really want to turn down God? <laughs> Like, do you understand? Just think of it in simple terms, like, you know, like the captain of the basketball team or the president of the class or the top cheerleader or the beauty queen or whatever your shorthand is for the most, you know, wonderful person is calling you for a date and you're like, oh, what is he, what is he seeing me? What is she seeing me? I can't do it because I, whatever they see in me, it, it, it has to be a mistake because I'm not worthy of their attention. But the one who's pursuing us is the one who made us, the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. And that's the one who's pursuing us. We're being, Yom Kippur is not like, can you imagine like there's like a, a fancy businessman and you're desperate to get a, an appointment with them and it's like, please just make five minutes for me, please, please, please. And then finally you get five minutes for them, from them, right? That's you trying to break into their schedule, right? God called us. He said, hey, we have an appointment. We have a date on, on the 10th of Tishrei. <laughs> It's a standing appointment. He's pursuing us. Like, and you want to say no to God? This is the greatest opportunity that you could ever have in your life. This is why this is the happiest day of the year. God is calling us. God wants to do something for us. God is taking us out. I can't wait. I can't wait. Okay. So, just one more thing for there. There, every year there are people who um, are told by doctors and everything like that um, that they that they're not allowed to fast on Yom Kippur, and and I know that it's a very heartbreaking thing for people to get that 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 diagnosis, and and yeah, if your doctor says it, just run it by a a, a um, you know a. a proper rabbi and 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 just get the the full uh, you know the full the full directions on on, on, on what to do but um, but Reb Shlomo tells a story about there were there were two rabbis it's a true story two rabbis who were in the hospital and the rabbi tells both of them that they have to eat on Yom Kippur and one of the rabbis is is crying and crying and crying and the other rabbi is okay and what is the, the, the second rabbi, what did, what did he say? And listen to these words. He said, All my life I served God by not eating on Yom Kippur. This year I will be serving God by eating on Yom Kippur. So, that's what it is. <laughs>